Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 31, Recapitulating the People of God. And in this episode, I'm not going to take us specifically into one passage of Scripture, but rather cover a few chapters, um, of the first five chapters actually, from the Gospel of Matthew. And the reason I would like to do that today is because Matthew is doing something masterful in his telling of Jesus' story. And if you and I don't know what we're looking for or are not tuned in to what Matthew is in fact doing, we will miss some majorly significant things about the life of Jesus. But because we're interested in this podcast in unbinding the Bible from the many ways it's been misread and misapplied, it's my personal conviction that what I'm going to share with you today is one of the biggest reasons why people misunderstand and misread the Bible is because they do not understand what is actually taking place in and through the life of Jesus Christ. And so I'm very excited for this episode. This will shape the way we begin to tackle future episodes in the podcast. And so I'm excited that you're along for the ride. Let's just jump right into it. As we begin today's episode, I'd like to take just a moment to remind us of where we've been in the past couple of episodes. We've been focusing in on Jesus' wilderness temptation of the enemy, and we compared that in episode 29 to how Adam and Eve were originally tempted in the garden, which is what led to the fall explicitly and the very, very much the need for redemption. And then in episode 30, we looked at the temptation again of Jesus in the wilderness, but from a slightly different perspective. And we saw that Jesus as the Son of God is very similar to Israel as was called the Son of God in Exodus chapter 4. And their struggles in the wilderness, which Moses recounts to the second generation of Israelites having been redeemed from Egypt, he recounts the failure of their parents to live successfully and trust the Lord in their wilderness wanderings. And it's from those passages in the book of Deuteronomy that Jesus quotes in defense of Satan's accusations and attacks on himself, showing us that Jesus is in fact recapitulating or repeating that wilderness experience. And I'm not sure how that sat with you, if that is brand new, if you've heard that before, if that comes across as somewhat irrelevant, or maybe that is very relevant to you. I'm not sure how it, it sits, but when you look at the Gospel of Matthew, which is where I've chosen to pull the temptation narrative from as opposed to Luke's Gospel, but when we look at the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is doing something very interesting with Jesus, and it's not coincidental. It's not just an insight that is worth glossing over when we compare Jesus's wilderness temptations with the kinds of temptations that Israel faced in the wilderness. In fact, what we talked about in episode 30 is one of the most important things to grasp when coming to understand the nature of Jesus. And yet, if you know anything about Israel's story, their wilderness wanderings and temptations in the wilderness and subsequent failure to withstand those temptations is not the only part of their story that matters. If you know much about the Old Testament at all, beginning, I guess, with Israel's story from the book of Exodus, Israel as a nation was enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. 
Their ancestors had arrived in Egypt thanks to Joseph's wisdom and blessing by God himself to provide for the people and to protect them. So Egypt became a place of refuge and safe haven for the people of God through the book of Genesis. But then after a period of years and a new pharaoh rising to power who did not know about Joseph or all that he had done for Egypt, began to begin threatened by the very people that were there. And if you know the story, Pharaoh noticed how rapidly the Israelites were multiplying and spreading, and he feared that if they continued to do so, they would overthrow him and the empire that he had worked so hard to build. And so you know that Pharaoh makes a a decree that he is going to kill all the baby boys, all the Hebrew baby boys in Egypt at the time. And it's, it's, it's at this moment that a little baby named Moses is rescued and is saved by his mom and sent down the Nile River and ends up being raised by Egyptians. And then Moses is the, is the man that God uses to call the people of Israel out of Egypt to find freedom and to be able to worship the Lord God in the wilderness. And when Moses does this in the first few chapters of Exodus, the people mass exodus, they mass exit Egypt and they end up heading toward Mount Sinai. Along the way, however, they get stuck by this huge body of water known as the Red Sea, where they're afraid they're going to be killed and destroyed, and the Lord God opens up a way for them to pass through the Red Sea and arrive safely on the other side. Israel then ventures through the wilderness for a while and arrives at Mount Sinai. They receive the Ten Commandments. They receive the commandments that the Lord desires for them to have, and then they do, in fact, spend 40 years after venturing into the Promised Land for a brief time but do not believe they're able to conquer the promised land. They come back and give a bad report to the people that those who inhabit the land are far too big for the people, that God won't even be able to bring them into this special land. And so because of their lack of faith and trust in God, they spend 40 years in the wilderness where that first generation eventually dies off. Now, these are foundational aspects and components to the story of the people of Israel. They're found in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, also known as the Torah. They were the rock-solid foundation of the experiences, the history, the faith, the promises, the covenants of the people of God that sets the stage for every subsequent story that you will read in the Old Testament. These issues, these experiences, these particular aspects of their story form the root of the very story of the people of Israel. This defines who they are, and it defines who they are going to be. Well, when we come to the opening pages of the Gospel of Matthew, many readers, particularly in the 21st century, who don't understand much about rootedness and story, find the first chapter of Matthew really dull, at least the first 18 verses. Because if you pick up your Bible and read the first 18 verses of Matthew, chapter 1, what you find is nothing more than a very lengthy genealogy with a whole bunch of names that are very hard to pronounce. You recognize a few names sprinkled throughout because some of the names are highlighted in some of the stories of the Old Testament, but many of them are not. But there are two important things to understand, and the reason why Matthew lists the genealogy here is he's connecting for us Jesus's connection to Abraham, the father of of the nation, the one to whom God originally made the promise to call a people for himself in the first place, and also connects him to David, 
Because David, as Israel's greatest king and as Israel's greatest representative, the people of Israel need to know that Jesus, having his roots connected to both Abraham, the father of the nation, and to the greatest king, puts him in a very significant place to have impact for Israel's benefit. But as you continue to read through the story, you find some interesting things. And this is really what I want to point out in this episode. What you find, if you remember the highlight points of Israel's history and you tuck them away into your mind, when you come to Matthew 1-5, to the way Matthew tells this story is very, very interesting. Because believe it or not, in Jesus' life story, there was also a threat upon his life from a ruler of a people who promised out of his rage and frustration that he was going to be threatened, uh, there was a threat for him to lose his empire, seeks to destroy all of the boys two years old and under according to the time that the that Herod actually thought that the star was promising the coming of some great king. And so if you remember the story in Matthew chapter 2, you have these wise men from the east who were sent and who were come looking for the birth of this baby who's going to save his people from their sins. The Magi are coming to offer him gifts and offer him worship, and they go to Herod first seeking where this child is to be found. Well, Herod, the king at the time, and all of Jerusalem with him were extremely troubled at this news because if anybody threatens Herod in his position of rulership by their very presence, then Herod is probably going to do something irrational or rash or both. And sure enough, he tells the the Magi to (laughs) tell him where the baby is to be born so he can go and worship him too. And these Magi are warned in a dream not to return to Herod and give him that information. And so they slink off in the other direction. This, of course, makes Herod furious. And so what happens in the story of Jesus? Well, Jesus, if Joseph, Jesus' father, is also warned in a dream to flee to Egypt to escape the threat of Herod so that Jesus can find a safe haven and a place of rescue and a place of rest in Egypt from certain destruction. If you take a step back into Israel's story, particularly in the final chapters of the book of Genesis, you will find that the nation of Israel as a whole took refuge and found rest in the land of Egypt to prevent them from certain destruction. They find their rest in that place. A handful of years go by in in Israel's story in the Old Testament, and eventually Egypt becomes a place of oppression. It becomes a place where they don't want to be. But it's interesting, when you get into Genesis, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 2, it says that Joseph arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. Now, one of the most enjoyable things to do when you are reading the New Testament is if you have a book with footnotes or endnotes or comments or suggestions under the margins, you'll find a little reference point to this passage that's quoted. And my my encouragement to you would be to check those Old Testament references. 
To find out when a New Testament author says such and such happened to fulfill what was spoken, it's often very enlightening and illuminating to go back to those Old Testament passages and say, oh, what was going on in that context? How was one of the promises that was made or threats that was made, how was that an encouragement to the people? How was that something that they were hoping to avoid? What what do we learn about the setting that was taking place in Israel versus the setting that's taking place in the New Testament. And so if you have a footnote at your Bible, it will tell you that out of Egypt I call my son is a reference back to Hosea chapter 11. And so I'd like to read this for you for just a second because according to the New Testament, it says that this passage was written in fulfillment, or Jesus rather, is fulfilling this prophecy by being called out of Egypt. And so here's what's happening in Hosea 11. In verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burned offerings to idols. Now, what I find really, really interesting about that passage in in Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 is that that passage not only doesn't sound like a prophecy or a prediction of a coming Jesus, but it isn't a prophecy about a coming Jesus. It's just not. It means exactly what it sounds like it means. It's a reference back to the Exodus. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, I referenced this in the last week's episode in Exodus 4, that when the Lord tells Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go, he refers to Israel as a whole as his firstborn son, and therefore threatens to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son if Pharaoh doesn't let the Lord's son go. And it's something very, very similar is happening in Matthew chapter 2. The out of Egypt I called my son is being applied by Matthew, not to Israel as a whole, being freed from slavery in Egypt, but is being referred to Jesus as a son coming back from Egypt when danger has been alleviated. Jesus is standing in the place of Israel as the entire people of God and is receiving not just promises made to Israel, but is receiving the very life that comes from their story. He is recapitulating their story, beginning with fleeing to Egypt, finding safety and rest in Egypt, only to then have Egypt be the kind of place that he needs to be freed from. Jesus' experiences as a little boy fleeing to Egypt and then returning from Egypt when Herod is dead is an exact recapitulation of Israel's going into Egypt to find safety and then needing to be free from Egypt once oppression begins. Now, if Jesus' connection to Israel could simply be isolated to this one instance regarding Egypt, then we might be able to chalk this up as a nice coincidence and then move on. But unfortunately, we can't. 
because Matthew is just starting to warm up. He's not even really begun to swing yet, and he's going to very soon. Because if you come to chapter 3 in the Gospel of Matthew, you come to John the Baptist, who calls the people of Israel to repentance by calling them out to the water to be baptized by him in the river, um, in the Jordan River. Jesus, of course, as you know, comes out to the Jordan and says to John that I need you to baptize me to, it is necessary for you to do so to fulfill all righteousness. And it's somewhat of a strange phrase that Jesus uses, um, particularly because when we, you and I think of righteousness, we oftentimes think of morality, moral behavior, um, doing the right thing. And, and those things are partially true, but when applied to Jesus, particularly in a context where John is baptizing people for the forgiveness of their sins and calling them to repentance, it certainly does raise the question, is Jesus being called to confess his sins and to repent? Is that what it means to fulfill all righteousness? And I would like to submit to you that I don't think it is. In fact, I don't think that's what Matthew is doing at all. But rather, when you understand or begin to understand that Jesus in some strange way is a culmination of all that Israel was supposed to be, a representative head of the entire people of Israel and someone whose own life story is meant to recapitulate or repeat the story that the people of God went through themselves once in the, um, in the Old Testament, then you begin to have a little different perspective of what Jesus might be talking about. You see, to be righteous is someone who is faithful to the promises that he's made. And so for God himself to be righteous is for God himself to bring about the very promises that he said he was always going to bring about. And of course, as you read the Old Testament, you know that many of God's promises, particularly his covenants, are directed toward the people of God. They're directed toward the people of God such that he promises to bless them if they obey, promises not to if they don't, but promises that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, God has not given up on that promise, despite Israel's waywardness and sin. But for Jesus to approach John and say, it's necessary for me to be baptized by you in order to fulfill all righteousness, what Jesus is saying is, God is still faithful to keep his covenant promises. He's simply going to keep them through me. And so what does Jesus do? After being called out of Egypt, again, this is the way Matthew is telling Jesus' story. He doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the in-between years between when Jesus was baptized, or I'm sorry, when Jesus was called out of Egypt and when he was baptized. But as you and I read the story, we're, we're just catapulted to the next event. This is the next event in Jesus' life story. It's this strange interaction of being brought into the water, the waters of baptism, by John in order to fulfill all righteousness. Okay, well, let's backpedal a bit. Let's go back to the book of Exodus. And I would like to ask you, where did Israel as a people, the people of God, the son of God, where did Israel as a people go as soon as they were freed from Egypt? Oh, that's right. They went to the Red Sea. 
And when they found themselves caught between an, an imposing army behind them and a Red Sea in front of them, God, through Moses, parts the waters of the Red Sea and the people walk safely across. So the people walk through the waters of the sea and are thereby cleansed of the enemy and the oppression that was behind them, i.e. the pursuing Egyptian army. Numerous times throughout the history of Israel, sometimes in the Psalms, Paul even says this in the book of 1 Corinthians, referring to Israel's walking through the Red Sea as their baptism. He talks about being baptized into Moses and baptized into the Red Sea. And he refers to it this way, I think, because of exactly what's happening with Jesus. This baptism here is a sign of the the death of the old and the oppression of the old and the coming out on the other side into new life. These are the images and themes that Paul uses in the book of Romans to talk about Christian baptism. Peter says something similar in the book of 1 Peter about baptism. It is a dying to the old and a raising to new life of the new. So here's Jesus who has no sin to repent of, no old life to throw off, but needs to associate himself with everyone who does, particularly Israel herself, who has found in their story a walking through the Red Sea where their enemies were gone through the same waters, but they found freedom in life. And Jesus says, it is fitting for me to be baptized by you to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, I too came out of Egypt and was called out by God. And now I'm going to be walking through the waters of baptism just like you did. Jesus, again, is recapitulating Israel's story. He is repeating in himself the very things that they dealt with. And so let's keep reading. In Matthew chapter 4, the passage we spent the last two weeks looking at is a very, very clear reference to Jesus' time, 40 days representing the 40 years of Israel's wilderness wanderings. And this is not a stretch. This is not making stuff up or whatnot in the book of of Numbers when Israel's spies are sent into the promised land to scope out the land and to figure out the best way to go in and take over the land, their spies are gone for 40 days. At the end of the 40 days, they return and 10 of the spies give a bad report about the land and the inhabitants in the land. Two of the spies give a good report. The 10 outweigh the the strength of their you know opposition to the people and the people decide we're not going in and god explicitly says because your spies were in the land for 40 days i'm going to make you wander for 40 years and so even in the bible and the way this originally happened with israel's story in their wilderness wanderings in their failure in the wilderness to trust the lord their god jesus himself is victorious in the same wilderness wandering one year for one day, one day for one year. And we spent an entire episode looking at this, and so I don't need to go back through it with you. I hope you understand what I'm attempting to show you. Because when you come to Matthew chapter 5, which is Jesus going up on a hillside, sitting down and having his disciples come to him, and he begins to say to them, blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And on and on and on. 
Jesus begins a teaching of the people on a mountain where they come to him to be instructed by him as a person in authority who has received and who is speaking with authority about the laws of God as they pertain to the kingdom of God to a people who are eagerly listening. Jesus begins his sermon, as it's been called, the Sermon on the Mount, with a promise of blessings, of blessings for what the people stand to gain if they, in fact, embrace the very things that he is teaching them. He instructs them about the law throughout the book, throughout Matthew chapter 5. He instructs them very clearly, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What's fascinating about what Jesus is doing is by going up on a mountain, by having his disciples come to him there and seating him, putting himself in a seated position, one of authority, one where he is seated and is able to then explain the law to the people, he is repeating exactly what Israel dealt with through the person of Moses, Moses most explicitly, but receiving God's law from the mountain, from Mount Sinai, and delivering it to the people. The law, if you know, particularly at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, when that law is repeated for this second generation of believers, the final two and a half chapters are filled with blessings and curses, blessings for obedience, cursing for disobedience. Jesus is doing the exact same thing. He is simply repeating, recapitulating the giving of the law to penetrate to the level of the heart which is something that the law originally seemed to have no power to do, although it was always the Lord's intention that it would reach to the heart. Jesus is recapitulating Israel's experience in receiving the law and showing them how far it is that they've gone away from actually keeping this law. Do you know why it is? that the Lord God puts blessing onto Jesus. Jesus says, this is necessary to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. Yes, and righteousness is the thrust of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has to undo wrong interpretations of the original law, which he does all through chapter five. In chapter six, Jesus addresses all of those personal and intimate, pious forms of religion that are valuable, giving, fasting, praying. But he shows the subtle ways in which those kinds of things produce self-righteousness and makes people think that their righteousness is better than another person because of how well they pray or how much they give or how gloomy their faces look when they fast and go through such horrible discomfort because of their piety toward God. Jesus has to strip it all out because self-righteousness is the great enemy to true righteousness. And then in chapter seven, Jesus lays out very, very explicitly what it looks like then to begin to compare yourself to other people. And to wish that you had a position in your life that they don't or that they didn't have a position in, in their life that you do. And he begins chapter 7 very simply with, do not judge lest you not be judged. You see a speck in your brother's eye? First take the plank out of your own eye and then you're going to see clearly how to remove the speck from your brother's eye. 
The Sermon on the Mount is the most stunning presentation of true righteousness found anywhere in the world. And it is Jesus recapitulating Israel's receiving of the law so that throughout his ministry, he can show them by his life and his actions what keeping that law would actually look like in the life of a person. Jesus is not coming here to rewrite the script and to, to, to be plan B. He is coming to relive the original script that was messed up, but not to chuck the whole thing, but rather to walk back through all of the same experiences, all of the same failures, and to do them righteously. Jesus is Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise made to the people of God about who they would be and what God would ultimately accomplish through them. This is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 1 that all of the promises of God are yes in Christ. What he means is that Jesus actually is the answer to every promise ever made by God to his people. The way Jesus is able to do that is as we've, is as we've said, he is the representative head of Israel. He is the representative head of all humanity. He is the culmination of everything Israel was supposed to be and to do. He is the one who sought refuge in Egypt and then needed to escape Egypt. He is the one who avoided being killed by an oppressive ruler at a young age and his life was preserved. He is the one who was ransomed and saved by going through a body of water the same way Israel once did. He is the person who was faithful in the wilderness and did not succumb to the enemy's temptation. He is the one who walked up the mountain, faced God himself, came back down from the mountain and presented the law of truth and righteousness to the people of God so that this world would be transformed. Jesus is Israel. And why I'm bringing this to your attention right now is because it has massive effects on the way you and I read the entire Old Testament. Because there are so many times where people will read the Old Testament and they will do what I call a catapult hermeneutic, a catapult way of interpreting the Bible. They'll read a passage of scripture, which is about God's care for his people, and they will jump, skip right over Jesus. They will catapult right over the gospels and what we read about Jesus in the New Testament, and they will apply that directly to themselves or to their situation or to their nation. And I have seen this time and time again, and it saddens me because it is a misreading of the Bible to think that because God had particular nationalistic promises directed toward Israel in the Old Testament, that we today can claim similar privileges on a nationalistic level by assuming that God's treatment and love for and care for and protection of Israel as a nation is rightly applied to God's love for and protection and care for America as a nation. I understand why people do this. They do it because they think that because America 
was supposedly founded upon Christian principles, that that means that God's love and affection is automatically due to them. But it's not. Jesus's person culminates all of the blessings and promises and love and care that God has for his quote-unquote people. Jesus is the thrust. Jesus is the one on whom all the promises rest. Jesus is the one who has repeated everything that Israel was supposed to be and do. Jesus is the one on whom all the blessings rest. Therefore, Nations now are no longer those things or those entities which look back to Israel to be the one that that forms the paradigm. Rather, nations now, as far as Jesus is concerned, aren't based upon geographical locations at all. They are based upon those whose faith rests in him. And that is why Peter says that the church or the Christians are the holy nation. Jesus has obliterated geographical categories. They don't just get catapulted from an Israel-based relationship with God to then another country in our sense of the word country or nation um, relationship with God. And we may be able to explore these later in future episodes, but I really do want to set us up for how as Christians, those who find their identity in Christ are most clearly prepared to read their Bibles in the correct way. And so that's all the time we have for this week's episode. I would love to hear from you. I know some of these topics might be difficult to receive. Um, It may be new to you. You might want to explore new thoughts with me, and I would love to engage you in that way. Um, So unbindingthebible at gmail.com is a great way to get a hold of me. Um, You uh, Also, if I would appreciate it if any of you would get on your podcast app that you listen to these podcasts on and give me a rating or a review or both um, if you haven't already done so. This allows others to find the podcast and be able to engage us in the same kinds of discussions that we've been having for the last six months. So again, I hope you have a fantastic Holy Week. Um, Look for bonus episode number two on Good Friday and bonus episode number three on Easter Sunday morning. I hope that you have a fantastic Easter 2019 as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that he gives to the world. Have a great week.